Well, hello there, beautiful people. Welcome to Sestory's podcast. If you didn't know by now, by clicking on the link, that's what, you, that's what you're listening to. It's a place where filmmakers get high and tell crazy set stories. My name is Hootie, and I've got Jonathan and Charles with me. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm good. Oh, he's drinking. Charles is drinking. What are you drinking? We're drinking coffee with, with Yoda. <laughs> oh, is that baby Yoda or just regular Yoda? Re regular Yoda. Regular Yoda. <laughs> that's cute. Um, I hope you guys have all been good, because it's a little crazy out there. Yeah. Um, you know yeah. what I'm saying? So please, to all our listeners, wear a mask. Uh, I do. I don't always wear underwear, but I wear a mask. You, know you don't need saying? underwear. No, right? But, but, you, <laughs> but you need a mask. But you need a mask. Um, anyway, uh, but yeah, because we all want to get back to work, right? We all want to get back to sets, but today is a very special episode. I, I always say that because we always have the coolest guests on. I've got Toby Kirton with me. He's a, a friend of mine. I met him on a set, on a student set, and he was the AD, and he did an amazing job. How are you, Toby? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. It's, um, I'm calling from London at the moment, and it's, yeah. the weather is beautiful, but I share with you guys the same angst to get back to work, and I know. Uh, it's, it's sad. It's sad. Yeah, it's, it's, sad it's, hard. It's, it's hard. And our industry has will forever changed. I think the type of stories that people want to see now is slightly different to what it used to be. I feel like the 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 days of escapism in its fully fleshed out form is kind of dwindling, and people want to see more kind of I, I think human condition type stories, like the great films of the seventies, which are my favorite personally about society. No. That was a great area. I feel like yeah. that are the kind of movies people are going to see now or people are going to demand to see, which is great because yeah. I love those movies, you know. Amazing. Um, I mean, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do in this industry and uh, like... Well, I, mean, I, I write and direct prim primarily. That's what I do. And when I'm in between jobs, I use my services as an AD because the great thing about film school, and I went to film school at the New York Film Academy in, in good old Burbank, the beauty of that school and what I taught there was basically in terms of having a level of understanding about every single department. So when you're, as an AD, you have to really understand, know a lot about filmmaking, you have to know a lot about directing, you have to you have to know how much time it takes to set up a boom mic and record, you know, wild lines, all that kind of thing. And you have to have an important level of understanding. So I feel like if you have a great film school background, you can really use that well as an AD, I think, and really help everyone out. So. That's what I do in between, you know, but primarily yeah. I direct and I, I write as well. Amazing. Well, yeah, well, I know you have like a, like a war film that just looks amazing. It really does. Yeah, well, what, I... What was I, the title of that one? It's called The Little Picture. Yeah. And that it was really... amazing. That was really my way of trying to say, because it was my graduate film and everyone, you know how it is, everyone in the class has to make a movie. And I thought, well, how can I basically because people are going to watch them in a row at a screening at right. Warner Brothers, you know how it is. And I thought, well, how, how, how can I allow my film to be the one people are talking about when they leave the cinema, right? Mm -hmm. Or when they're eating dinner that night, what's going to make them think? So I thought I'm going to do a film set in the 1940s about war, but it's actually nothing to do with war, right? It's just used it as a background. And I thought it could be a really interesting way in to explore the search for human decency and kind of redefine the student filmmaking of the war genre because films like that are extremely difficult to do on a very, very low budget, you know, extremely yes. low. So I thought, well, I like the challenge and I only endeavor 
into work that I think is, you know, is challenge. It, there's going to be right. a huge challenge there. And I thought, this is the kind of themes I want to explore. And that was, and I love history, first off. I love the most about, I love about history in film mm -hmm. is that I can show that attitudes haven't changed one iota, which you can't really show in any other medium. So that's what I've always especially, especially in a student film, like do like, when I saw the still pictures from on your Instagram from your from the set, I was like, "Wow, this is very ambitious for a student for a student set and everything like that." Because you don't have fifty people behind the camera, you know, helping you out, right? Unless you did, I don't know. Um, I, but <laughs> yeah, but um, it's very ambitious. But it's a risk that I'm glad you took, and it looks amazing. I feel like way. we take risks we have to that's yeah. like i think that's part of the job description i feel like if you're in a position where you're saying to yourself mm, this is safe this is easy i think you've got to really think why you're making a film first off you know and for me right. I've always the why been, before the how thank you exactly <laughs> why before the how but also the plan is not to have a plan right that's how i look at it uh in approaching any project and um i think the, the bigger risk you take in cinema the the more you're going to learn and get out of it i think as a filmmaker um, yeah. But you're right, it was, it was, I mean, I didn't really think about it at the time. It, looking back on it, it was a very ambitious task. And prior to that film, I made a movie in New York, part of my studies as well. I flew to New York and shot in a real prison in Queens, which is a story in itself. Yeah, that was a... Wow. A real, wait, a real prison? <laughs> like it was, it was still yeah, had it was, inmates in it? Yeah, so I wanted to make a film. The film's called Dissonance. You can see it on YouTube. I put it on there. It's basically about a world where music is illegal, right? Which has been done before, but I wanted to redefine it in a, in a certain creative way. And it was a completely silent movie, right? With no nice. Because I thought, well, a world without music and these people don't have a voice in this society. So if they don't have a voice, then they shouldn't be talking in this movie. So the film is told through music. And the film is black and white because a film without music is a world without color. Oh so God, I thought really long part about these tropes. But yeah, we filmed in a, I wanted to film in a real prison because for me, when a location in a, especially in a short film, um, is a character in itself, you know? You really want to really establish the audience about world building, which I think is where a lot of students and young filmmakers kind of miss out on the, the world building that you, you're able to kind of do. So I wanted to kind of create that. And the majority of the film takes place in this prison and I thought, well, I've got to find one. I don't want to shoot on a soundstage or a set because they look dodgy, you know? Yeah, yeah they do, yeah. Establish the, the grandiosa and the kind of looming danger and the looming intimidation of this prison. And I love prison movies. I love Shawshank. I love The Green Mile. I love those movies. So I thought, well, I've got to try and find this. And I went online, <laughs> prisons, and I found one in New York, in Queens, which was actually a detention center, which has been used before and since I showed up. When I was, it's been used in, I think, Marvel's, is it Iron Fist? I, I'm not too sure. The Iron Fist, is that yeah. Marvel? They shot there for that. And they shot um, Bridge of Spies, a short clip of Bridge of Spies there with Mark Rylance when he's in prison. And then I shot the film in there. And then I went to a screening here in London of The Irishman. Mark Scorsese is The Irishman. And oh. there's a scene where Al Pacino is leaving the prison. And that was my prison broadwalk. It was pretty cool. So wow. we had access in that prison to there was three levels and we had access to level two and three. On level one was a real penitentiary where they were actually keeping people in cells and jumpsuits. Oh, so every time they went out of the these people would be, it was, it was an interesting experience. But as a, as a director directing a film in a prison, it, it really helped all cast members in kind of really channeling in what we were trying to do for the film. And I 
I made all of the extras in the prison eat their lunch in the cell, and it really helped them. <laughs> oh wow! But when you, and I remember I went there on the scout, which was the October we shot in the January, flew especially for that. You, you know, you sit in the cell and you just feel like you've just done something wrong, and it really kind of it helps you kind of visualize and helps you explain you know emotionally how a character feels and I think it really helped the performances in that film I think the way the performances you know as a result of that environment it really aided the performances that's, I'll let the work speak amazing. for itself yeah. but, uh, I know yeah but yeah. how did you how did you keep it quiet on set with those real guys downstairs? <laughs> well, it was it was a silent movie, so well, that's another story. Oh, there right? you go. <laughs> I, was, I made the movie when I was nineteen, and I thought, well, I'm going to shoot this film non-sync. You know, it's going to be a silent film, and I'll put in all the sound later. Right? So, and this was my <laughs> this was my discovery of uh, the true meaning of foley and sound design. <laughs> I basically I didn't even shoot sound for reference, which I have learned since is something you should always do. Yeah. Even if you're not going to use it as a reference, as a, as a thing to reflect on as you, when you do your artificial sound. So I had this great film that I cut together. I was really happy with it. And then my task was, right, I've got to, you know, give it some sound. And not only the music, which is obviously important to the film, but mm. other sounds. I kid you not, I spent a whole year with, uh, in the sound department at NIFA, where there was a really great professor. A year? A year. Oh, yeah. Wow. And I used all my free time to basically have consults with this guy in the in the in the booth with on the um on pro tools and i recorded it really myself in establishing all the, the sounds of the film it's a lot that's of fun and i, love I, like, I took like five pairs of shoes and went to the booth and and yeah it was a lot of fun and i really made me learn about the importance of sound design arguably arguably 51 percent of your movie is sound so mm -hmm. that's how i regard it and so you went sound over visuals. <laughs> exactly. So when I watch a movie now, I play close attention to its sound design. And you can tell so much about the characters and about point of view, perspective mm -hmm. through sound design. Especially oh, in yeah. silent films, the sound, or especially the music, like whenever they're walking, like they have certain instruments, like the xylophone or something, like. <laughs> sure. But certain <laughs> instruments, like. You tell stories with sound and, and yeah. I'm not talking about, it's the way in which you do it and how it relates tonally to your scene and, and you know, thematically it was just a really great learning experience so as a result of that film I was able to really it really kind of defined who I was as a filmmaker I learned my voice during that yeah you and found your film, taste and that film went to the Cannes Film Festival which was a lot of fun um, Ooh, so yeah cool. it, 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 people really responded to it well and it made me it made me really feel great that it was being screened in countries like Brazil and France and non-English speaking countries that are responding it to the same way an English speaking audience will. So you know what? I know I'm sorry to interrupt, but one thing I noticed, um, because I we did something like that, it was silent, and we had Argentina, my friend from Argentina direct it, or I'm sorry, edit it. And um he sent it to his other Argentinian friends and they don't know English at all. And it was it was there was like a couple dialogue things in there and they they all understood what was going on. So maybe with the you know with the silent film with the, without the sound to be distracting. They pay more attention to the visuals and the, you know, the music and, and it's all exactly that. exactly it. I mean, what I learned making that film was, you're absolutely right, from a directing standpoint, how am I supposed to convey all my emotions with no dialogue? Mm. And I feel like people use dialogue today as a scapegoat. At the end of the day, it's visual storytelling. If you want to write a lot of dialogue scenes, you might as well write a fucking book, you know what I mean? It's like, it's a visual <laughs> yeah. story. You know, excuse my language. Um, but no, it's kind of, that's, that's what I learned. And also, like you said, um, in order for another, I had to prove to an audience, you know, that 
I have to hit every beat, you know. Um, but no, I learned so much from that. So much. Amazing. That's awesome. But do you have any like horror stories from that prison or like just No, everything <laughs> that would be so scary to me. Oh man. Making that film was was just a, a story in itself, really. It was because 19, I wanted to, I remember we read the script in class and people at the end laughed. They said, okay, what are you really gonna do? And I was like, no, 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 this is what I'm gonna do for the for the assignment. And I never, th I never saw assignments as assignments. I was like, this is an opportunity to make a really great film. Yeah. Know? And like I said, I was studying in Los Angeles. I was studying in Burbank, but there was obviously a New York Film Academy in New York. So I thought, well, I can just go to New York and use their equipment, you know, piece of cake. But then I learned that they didn't have connections, like they're completely separate entities and they didn't have, you know, it wasn't like a communicative, mm. you know, bridge over there. So I had to kind of forge, you know, I had to kind of forge communication between these two guys and try and make things happen. And yeah, there's a horror story where the, uh, uh, it was in, you know, have you ever been to New York? You guys ever been to New York? And um, I well, wish. In, in Wall Street, you got like the raging bull. It's like a raging bull in Wall Street. Like a, oh yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. So literally, that's on, I'm going to butcher, I think it's 1200 Broadway. I may have butchered that. But basically, that was the uh, equipment rental house or where the knife had kept his equipment on like an old, there was a guy in an elevator and it was like, you know, the haunted mansion. He had like a, the gates closed <laughs> like Titanic. And he, oh he wound it and he was like 80 years old and he hated us all because we kept going up and down to, you know. And we parked, <laughs> the, uh, we parked the budget truck on Wall Street, like literally it was Wall Street. And we had to unload the equipment into this truck and we were stopped every, you know, three seconds by security because we were unloading equipment on Wall Street. There were so many stories like that. And also I thought you could park a truck anywhere in New York and, you know, how wrong was <laughs> I? Um, but yeah, it's, it's a great stories there. And um, we filmed also, cause there was only three locations to the movie. And one of the first locations we shot at was a, an alley called Cortland Alley right, in New York which basically resembles the old streets and alleyways. When you think of New York, you think of like low hanging ladders and like, you know, tight yeah. alleys. And I thought there'd be loads of them in New York. I found out there was only three that exist that are kind of perfectly preserved. One of them was privately owned and he wanted something like 50 grand a day. And I was like, nope. <laughs> one, was, one didn't exist anymore. I showed up and it wasn't there. And then the third one was called Cortland Alley, which literally has, I think, 150 film credits to its name. You know the scene in Crocodile Dundee where he says, that isn't a knife, this is a knife. That was the alley, right? It's, it's showed up in so many movies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that was pretty good. <laughs> 50 grand? Yeah. 50 grand. Yeah, because, yeah. You can make a short film That's with that much money. You can make a short film with that money. <laughs> Oh my goodness gracious. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I've always been an advocate for ambitious storytelling. Because otherwise, what's the point? You know, what's the point? Yeah. Of, right. Don't get me exactly. wrong. You can, tell, you can tell a fantastic story with about a kid in his bedroom with a bouncy ball. You can do it. But mm -hmm. for me, yeah, it's the execution. It's, exactly. It's about the execution and you know its relevance. And mm. I've always been an I've always been a strong believer in asking yourself as the filmmaker the question of why am I telling this story? Or why now? I feel like if you don't have that answer, you better go back to the drawing board you know, and figure out. Yeah. I mean, I always ask that question to someone who is um, looking for a screenwriter, like a help, and I'm a screenwriter. And I'm like, well, okay, so they, they give me the draft and I read it. And I'm like, okay, it needs a lot of work. 
So the first, the first thing that I write on my notes is why do you want to tell the story? What is the theme? So then I can help you. So then I can get their perspective. So I can tell their point of view. So, and usually they, there's a big pause with that answer because they don't know. They're, I think they just think, oh, oh, I have this really cool shot. It's going to look like this. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's good. But we need to focus on the script and the story now. And I, mean, I think no that's what most do. people forget. Yeah, I mean, there's no one way to do it. I mean, I've, I mean, I've definitely been in a position where I, the concept attracts me. And I'm like, God, the concept sounds great. And then you write the narrative and then you kind of find a way in which you can kind of have a theme that relates to why you want to tell the story. And then you, you kind of find it in the process of making the movie, which is great. But yeah, I think it's important to have a reason why, because then that will channel through every single creative decision as you make the movie. Oh yeah, I kind of work that way. I kind of see the the film visually, and then I I, I I work from like the outside in. So I think of like a really back, cool shot like and the character. Yeah, it's a little weird, but that's how I mind. No, works. that's totally it. And then, and then I figure out okay, who are, where are these characters coming from? why you know there's there's a reason why it's like that image is in like got in my head like all of a sudden there's like uh -huh. a reason why you want to tell the story now i have to find it and that's the fun part though you know how it is with screenwriting you know scripts like a newspaper it changes every day right i know that's, yeah a script is like a news yeah. especially <laughs> tv <laughs> but it does i mean i used yeah. to be adamant creatively about okay it's the script the script is locked and everything has to obey the script and people have to get on their knees and worship the script. It's not, it's a living, breathing document and you've got to embrace mm -hmm. that, I think. Mm -hmm. and that's something mm -hmm. I've learned, it took me a while to learn, but it's, it's absolutely true. Even if it's your own writing or someone else's, you can feel free to kind of explore and play. And that's something I, I think is really vital in, in kind of creating something. I don't, like, I, don't like the, I don't like the word organic. I don't, I don't even know what that means, but finding something that's truthful for me. Mm -hmm. and that's the thing with about when I either work on other people's material or I direct my own material. It's always the question is, sometimes realism is boring in cinema. There's a difference between oh. something being realistic and something being interesting. And I'm always a strong advocate of finding something that's interesting. You know? Yeah, I mean, you have all these tools to play with, like the lighting, the sound design, the camera, the lens to <laughs> tell that visually. Mm. It's too much, it's too much. But um, yeah, mm. but and like most people, I think they only focus on the camera and that's it which is like, dude, you have all these tools oh, in your box Lord. to tell this, to tell this shot, to tell this story, to tell this moment. Um, yeah. And that just takes, that takes time to learn. You know, you have to like really experience it to be like, oh, okay, I get it. Like how you learn with how important sound design is. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You experience well, it and go through and find your taste. I was going to say, I had one director one time hit me up and he's like, hey, you know, I know you're a pretty good sound designer. I had this film that we shot in MOS because we were just going to put music over it and we thought it would be cool and whatnot. And I guess like when they started showing it later on downline, people were just kind of like, yeah, it's cool or whatever. And then I guess when he started editing his own sound design, people were like, oh yeah, this is much better. So eventually he reached out to me and he's like, I want you to sound design the whole thing. And it was an 18 minute film and they had like green screen sword fights and it's supposed to flash back between like was it like yeah basically reality and then like you know their um uh creative kind of like a uh, dream like state so like you can check it out it's a film on youtube called street ships and basically oh, like, I sound design it from the ground up like everybody oh is that the one that you showed me with yeah. the the ship in the the, the road okay yeah. that is yeah that is pretty amazing he 
there he's you designed it from the ground up man yeah, all of like, the sound that you hear is the director shot it like three years previous before he reached out to me and he said like hey we had the mistake of just shooting this like mos and like later on down the line too they also you know at least like invested into it like i remember uh he hired a composer they went to uh ocean way studios in nashville and actually hired an orchestra to actually <laughs> compose out the music and everything wow. so yeah it, it, wow. it was for a short film and it was supposed to be just like a proof of concept to show that they could do uh what was it um like an in-depth like commercial type of film like while making a short so it just yeah kinda, it does look like a commercial it looks like an yeah. epic commercial with a badass soundtrack so yeah well it just <laughs> it really does. Show that, you know the sound design just sitting there and like you know uh building it from the ground up it just really helps like you know do that you know 51 percent of the rest of the film where it's like you know you got it visually but now you have to express it uh audibly sonically yeah i mean how do you tell a sonically. story i mean it's like Auto. that's why it took me a year it took me a year to do yeah. that because yeah. like, you mate it was working from the ground up you know right. isolate making a making a spot sheet about exactly what sound we need. And, and what I learned about spotting a movie is, you know, you obviously record everything, you record everything. And then exactly. when you visualize the film and you, okay, we don't need that. We can take that away and we'll take that away. Rather right. than being in a position saying, I know we don't need that. And then you watch the movie and you're like, God, I really wish we had the sound of it putting the mug down, you know? And, and most yeah, of the- We've all been there, yeah. Yeah, and a hundred percent, I mean, I'd love for you guys to see the movie. It's on YouTube, it's called Dissonance, but Every single sound in that movie is me. <laughs> like yeah. all the grunting, the, the footsteps, <laughs> everything. It's me, you know? And yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. You've got to be patient, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, even that film, like, you know, I've had experience sound designing like feature films. That short, let alone, took me about six months. And that was me <sighs> with like two or three other sound designers. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, post post production hell. They don't call it post production hell for nothing. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. That's why a lot of them are all crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Your editors are pretty insane. You should yeah. you should edit, in my opinion, um, if you want to direct though, to support your your exactly. statement, working backwards, and your guys' statement in sound, um, because once you get a chance to sit down and see what's going on, you oh I could have done this, I could have done this, and then when you write, you remember you're editing something. You're like aha, I'm gonna add this specific sound or a specific visual storyboard or whatever i mean also using sound as a, a great way to transition from scene to scene is something i see that's pretty much overlooked one of the famous scenes that comes to mind is in the godfather where um sunny's no it's not sunny's the 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 the, the girlfriend who's being beaten do you remember she's being beaten up and uh yeah she kind of goes crazy and she smashes a load of things and gets the belt out and she's crying and going crazy. And it cuts to a scene of a baby crying at mm -hmm. Sunny's house. Mm -hmm. And next time, just, just watch out for that next time and you'll see the way sound is used as a great way of kind of- like to format it and the yeah. sound. It's really uh, fantastic. Oh, that rem there's another really good sound like transition, I guess, in The Matrix when Neo is yelling and it goes mm -hmm. to the cell sure. phone, uh, that internet yeah. old. All, uh, that still gives me chills every single time I listen to that because it sounds amazing. It's techniques, techniques like that that you really rarely see, and it's uh, and yeah. so try and figure out a way to what makes a transition. You know, something like a transition, which is so easy to overlook. How can we make a statement with that transition? It's Two of my favorites are 
the 2001 bone to spaceship which is iconic but also yeah. the Lawrence of Arabia where he blows out the match and it goes to desert have you not so you seen that it was, <laughs> yeah it makes you cool like, I can't describe it but it, it makes <laughs> you feel that's crazy. a good no that's you're right they shoot for that um what is it form edits where you cut from like to like like yeah. the crying you cut from a you know a woman screaming to a baby crying it's too yelling it's like to like but you, you know you plan for that you shoot for it or you storyboard yeah. for it that way you get that shot or that sound both and then you know in the edit you just click them together and then when you put them together psychologically it just it flows well and you you're an artist yeah like what honestly like i remember in films i went to uh film school in Scottsdale we had a pretty good program but they taught us like yeah uh you know shoot for the edit uh format edits are great ways to you know trans transition sometimes you don't shoot for it and you have to find it um you know but that's a good editor but if you you know you know the post then it'll help you write like you guys say or are you guys seen no country for old men right mm -hmm. yeah. yeah dude that movie is so well put together, written, shot, and everything that if you actually notice, like, I didn't notice it until, like, my audio engineer teacher pointed it out. He's like, there's no score in the mu movie. Yeah. yeah. He's like, mm -hmm. it's just so well put together in sound design that, you know, the story just keeps bleeding through without any mu music to drive it. I mean, I, that yeah. film, that kind of relates to what I was going to talk about, which is, yeah. I mean, the beauty of that film is you can shut off the sound and you can know exactly what's going on, right? Yeah, which, yeah. Great piece of work. Um, but... I mean, for me, that's my favorite film of the Coen brothers. I mean, it has a visual yeah. language, what, what Deakins did so well with that film. And right. How they're able to evoke mood through lighting and through blocking and through performance and through sound yeah, that's what That's what filmmaking is about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not the dialogue. No, yeah. sorry. Yeah. But like, I, I used to shoot a bunch of like actors, kind of like demo reels. And I'm like, all right, there's a lot of just sitting down talking for four pages. Like, give them some movement. I love yeah. how you do silent films because it forces the director or actors to like use their body, their emotions. Buster Keaton and uh, Charlie Chaplin, you know what I mean? Like those guys, um, another silent film error. Like th those are great films. I'm actually writing at the moment. I was very lucky before this lockdown. I was, assigned, I was given a writing assignment to write a screenplay for this company, which I'm now on a second draft for. So it kept me something to do throughout the pandemic. But I always aim for when I'm writing is there an example of a scene I can write that is literally no, no dialogue? You know? mm. And I try and aim for that because, you know, Hitchcock called it pure cinema, right? That's what we aim for, where, mm. you know, it's a pure cinematic experience. And I've always defined, when people ask me about directing or for people who don't quite understand what filmmaking is, they ask for a definition of what directing is. I say directing is like tailoring a suit, right? Every single thing, every single creative element has to contribute to your overall mood and tone of the film, right? Every single creative element. It's like, and for me, well, and I, everyone works differently, that's the beauty of the process. But for me, I, I only shoot what I'm gonna use, right? Like I storyboard excessively and I shoot. So if you, it's like reading a comic book, you can basically read the movie before it's even been shot. And if you put it next to the film, it's literally identical, right? That's mm -hmm. like Sin City to me. <laughs> exactly. But that's good. <laughs> Discovering the visual language of the film, and that will allow you as a director to basically make every single shot count about how as an audience we're supposed to feel. Either that's through lens choice or shot angle or shot size, all these creative endeavors that people in most cases overlook. They just think, right, we've got to see the gun, so I'm just going to sh do a close-up of the gun, right? There's something more to it, and it allows you to think, I think, as a director, 
gives you more of an intellectual understanding about how an audience to feel. So for me, storyboarding is like, you know, it's the godsend for me, you know, some, oh. people, some people work via shot lists for me. I, I, you know, what is the shot list? It's a load of writing. I like visuals. I like pictures. Yeah. And when, I direct, exactly, and when I direct, I actually bring out a little whiteboard on set and I blow up my um, storyboards for the day and I put them up. So everyone from the key grip to the main star knows exactly what we're shooting that day. And it helps everyone in terms of costume, lighting, makeup, everything. And then the actor yeah. sees close up and they're like, oh, damn, I've got to savor my performance for that moment. because I know he's going to use that moment for the movie. So they're able to think about way ahead about how they're going to. Mm, no, that's good. And the producers and the ADs, they love it because they can see right. And then I get a big black marker. And when we finish the shot, we've got it in the can. I cross it off. So psychologically, the crew are like, oh, great. We've only got five more shots. Then we can go. Yeah, we're seeing what's yeah. going on. It's a godsend. And I'd recommend it immensely if, if that's something that you that's, guys. That's damn good communication, man. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that affects the whole set. Like the atmosphere, people are more comfortable. They're like, oh, they're seeing we're pushing through it. Nobody's like, where are we? I don't know. Oh, great. Yeah. You're only as good as your crew. Yeah, you're only as good as your crew. Mm -hmm. I've learned yeah. so much through relations, and that's something I try and adopt when I'm when I'm an AD on projects. Which I don't mind ading. Don't get me wrong. You're with the filmmakers a lot. You can help. You know, but it's pretty non-creative if you ask me. So you're kind of dealing with the crew. But um, I guess you you're know, creative in your own way. <laughs> yeah, and also, and also, I mean, <laughs> I know they're not going to watch this, so, so I can talk about it. But uh, since I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> Since I've been back in the UK, I've been, I've been ADing a lot of independent feature films here in the UK. And the directors I'm working with, I'm trying to find a better word than incompetent, but they are. <laughs> and, uh, as an AD, you learn a lot about how not to direct a movie, right? Yep. Director, right, where's your shot list? Where's your storyboard? They haven't got one. I'm like, okay, that's fine. What's our coverage? Whatever, whatever. And I hate the term coverage. I hate that term. I don't know what it is. It's just dreadful. Um, and you know, the director I work with, whose name will remain a mystery, basically shot an actor walking out of a door from 15 different angles. I'm like, that's not filmmaking. That's not directing. What? My, my yeah. grandmother, bless yeah. her, can do that, right? Anyone can do that. You just put a camera, you shoot the crap out of a scene, and then he said something like, oh, let the editor figure it out. I mean, oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, yes. no. I hate that. I hate <laughs> that. <laughs> what, what copy. Directing yeah. is a Good inspiration in planning and prepping what you're going to do. Shooting on the set, I mean, it's pretty boring because you've made up all the discoveries. You've spoken to actors about the performance. You've, it's just about getting on the set, hit the X, lunch is at 12, let's figure things out, let's do it, right? And, mm. and you can't, and the same with working with actors, I and mean, that's a different topic, but I mean, you can't talk to the actor on set about their character motivations when the grips are sitting on the apple boxes saying, right, when are we gonna, you know, shoot this crap already, you know? And it's, it, you're right, it builds tension and you can't do that for your crew. They'll, you know, um, but, so yeah, being an AD is great because you can learn so much about directing and about the harmony on set, <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. Yeah, I've had, I was on a set once, it was a student film, Toby, so you know, we know, we all know about that, but he, she yes. like shot so many different angles, just and you're so gonna many. Like, you're going to use like 30% of that crap, so like, yeah. what's the point? And not only that, shooting an actor coming out of a door from 15 different angles makes the actor exhausted, first off. Mm -hmm. you know, you're wasting film, if you were shooting on film, you're wasting battery, if you were, it's just counterproductive to everything, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. 
what harm would it take for the director six months prior to storyboard it or come up with a shot list or even have a meeting with the DOP and say, right, when he comes in the door, we're going to see it as a silhouette on the back of a mirror. Oh, that's great. So we only shoot that scene because we know it's going to be put in the movie. But hey, people work in different ways. That's the beauty of the process. But I'm, I'm an advocate for planning full on. And don't get me wrong, when you're on a set and the lighting's coming from a different way or things change, you have to adapt. But it's always great to have a plan. Oh, 100%. Yeah. If I could give anything, any form of advice, it would be that. Planning is essential. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. You can't tell a meaningful story if you just show up. (laughs) You know, you just can't. Yeah. You can't can't show up and be like, right, we're going to shoot something today. They've got to think. They've got to think about the themes of the movie. They've got to think about the tone of the film. What film, what are they, you know, what color palette we're going to use? What's our shooting style, you know? Yeah, it doesn't have to be all technical talk. It doesn't have to be all jargon. No, that's actually the best direction when it's not technical. Mm-hmm. When it's just play, when it's playable direction and not result oriented. No, sure. and my technical knowledge of cinema and of cameras and crap is pretty poor. You know, for me, it's all about emotion and about character. And um, one of my favorite filmmakers, Sidney Lumet, he does something really hey, wonderful. Sidney Lumet, I'm surprised. My friend, Sidney Lumet. I hate <laughs> you know you know him you should read a book he his book on, about on directing is phenomenal please read it it's great it's short it's great but um anyway he says uh in 12 angry men which was his first feature film he does something really wonderful called the narrative lens plot which sounds pretty technical when you think about it but it isn't the whole film is set in a room as you know you know in a courtroom and at first, we see the film on a you know, 35 mil. Things are pretty calm. Things are pretty contained. Hey, how are you, pal? People are really relaxed and it's all good. And then as things start to get intense and aggressive and they're shouting and screaming and people are pulling hair, he goes to 75 mil. So as the film builds suspense, the lenses get tighter and tighter. And that's something an audience has no idea. It's a subconscious feeling. We know, oh God, something, I feel uncomfortable, I feel trapped, but that's the filmmaker's intuition, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all these things contribute to a meaningful experience. The psychology oh, yeah. behind visual language. Yeah. How it's so underappreciated in some independent films. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's like, oh, throw a wide lens on it, throw a close up and call it a day. It's like, yeah, but yeah. That's why the term coverage, like what does that mean? Yeah, exactly. What kind of coverage? Master, close-up, close-up, insert, you know. Insert, insert, insert. It's not, <laughs> yeah. not what filmmaking is, you know. Obviously, they teach you that, you know, at film school, that's great. You know? mm-hmm. But, like, it's not It's not what filmmaking is. Um, but, hey, that's me. No, that's totally no, right. No, that, that's, should, be that's 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 that should be everybody. That should be everybody. Seriously, like, once you, you, you nailed the, the nail on the, on the head, like, once you find your taste and, you, you know, you, you understand your flaws and, you, you know, you understand what you're good at, you know, then you apply that to your directing. Yeah. And a lot of that and, comes through. I mean, I'm an avid, avid film goer. You know, I'm obsessed with cinema. So I watch a movie a day, sometimes two. And a lot of that, if you want to be, it's like if you want to be a chef, you've got to taste a lot of food. You've got to know what, what works. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Same as a filmmaker. You've got to watch a lot of movies just to get a sense of where, what turns you on, what you like, what you don't like, and kind of forming your voice as an artist. Yeah. What subject matter you want to be a part of, what you don't, what you want to explore, what you think needs to be explored you know, explored. So I'm a huge, um, I think, I hate people, that, or I don't hate anyone, but well. <laughs> we won't tell anyone. Some people, people, I've heard this before, you may have, guys, they say to you, I don't watch movies, I make them. I'm like, well. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Oh my God, yeah. 
So for me, watching engrossing yourself in cinema is the least you could do. It's, it's the world's youngest art form. You can watch every prominent film. It doesn't take you that long to do so, you know? And uh, I think subconsciously as a director, you pull from the greats, you pull from the masters, you know? Yeah. Because when you approach a scene, you should say to yourself, right, there's only two ways I can shoot this scene and one of them is wrong, right? And as you construct the scene, you think in the back of your head, well, and this is something you don't even, it's subconscious. You know, you've got like David Lean is screaming in your right ear, Tarantino screaming in your left ear, Hitchcock's like yelling at that, you know, and you basically piece a scene together and then you, it just feels right on how it should be done for you. Yeah. And then you watch the movie and you're like, damn, that kind of reminds me of uh, Psycho a little bit, you know. So it's, it's, it's kind of like the DNA from the masters that you grew up watching is in your work, but you've redefined yeah. I'll give you an yeah. example. An example of how filmmakers have pushed the form is Spielberg, right? So Alfred Hitchcock was the king of point of view. In every Hitchcock film, North by Northwest, the plane shows up, Cary Grant looks at it, and then we see what he's looking at, right? <laughs> it's a great scene. But what Spielberg did is he turned point of view into point of thought. So he basically, instead of the audience seeing what the character sees, Spielberg made you feel what the character feels. So in Jurassic Park, when we see we see the dinosaurs, we see the reaction first, don't we? And the camera, the, you know, he does. I haven't got any glasses, but you know, he does this with the glasses, <laughs> and the camera, you know, pushes in like this, right? And that, as a result of the camera pushing in, we're feeling what they feel—a sense of awe and wonderment—and then we see what they see. So Spielberg took Hitchcock's oh. point of view, and he kind of excelled it into point of thought. So he pushed the form of the cinematic experience wow. based on his masters. So that's pretty cool. That's yeah. 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 But the, yeah. I think the most important thing to tell like new and upcoming filmmakers who want to tell these ambitious stories is not to necessarily copy your heroes, but be inspired by them. Because yeah. I've been on a set where it's like they want to do this shot, but they don't have the money. And it's so it's going to look a little bad. <laughs> you know Birdman. I mean? Sorry. I, yeah. <laughs> that movie. I think with any film, it's. I mean, they say, you know, great artists don't imitate, they steal. I mean, sure. But in terms of, it's important not to carbon copy, right? You don't want to carbon. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tarantino has been, you know, uh, people suspect him of copying films and there's like a before and after video of all that. But it's his because he kind of redefines the tone normally. It's a different tone. It's a different context, you know. So it's very difficult, I feel, to carbon copy a movie because it's you're, it, naturally and you're going to make it your own, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Plus, he's got a very strong style, Tarantino. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, and I think finding your voice comes out a lot out a lot of watching great masters. Oh yeah, touche. Yeah. Have and, you um, read the book by Christopher Beach? Um, it's a time in history, the collaboration between cinematographers and directors, the uh, the collaboration process. I haven't, but send me the link. I'm That's, down. Yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, because you say, like, I love film history. I'm totally obsessed. I have a 100-year-old, like, film projector and shit. But, um, but yeah, I think, like, learn history before, like, if you want to make movies, like, learn history like crazy. Yeah, man, because it's film history. Awesome. It's 120 years. That's, like, nothing. My yeah, granddad is. is younger than that, right? I mean, like, you could do <laughs> that's kind of uh, older than that. My film history book is a film by, what's his name? It's over here. Uh... I can't read it. It's called The Story of Film, which they made a, like, a Scottish bloke wrote it, and they made, like, the a... Story of Film. Like, an 18-hour documentary about it, where he literally traveled the world and interviewed everyone about cinema and its history. But the book is available. You should buy the book. 
We should do it like just on re book recommendations. I feel like that's oh yeah. No, that's always the story yeah. of film. The story of film, yeah, it's a great, great book about its history. One of my favorite books about cinema was more about Hollywood in the seventies and the, the 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 explosion of the studio system and the kind of emergence of independent filmmakers like Scorsese and Brian De Palma and Coppola and all these guys. It's called Easy Riders and Raging Bulls, and it's a phenomenal book. Easy guys, Riders and Raging Bull. Is it about the movies? I'm just kidding. It is. I mean, it's about, in a sense, how all these masters that we respect today got into the industry and. Oh, oh, really? And the sex and the violence. It's just like, there's a story of um, Dennis Hopper was, did something to John Wayne's daughter, said something, you know, ill towards her daughter. So he showed up, he landed his helicopter on Warner Brothers and he got out a scalpel and said, where is that Dennis Hopper? I'm going to chop off his balls. <laughs> oh, no! There's some great stories like that. So I would definitely recommend that. Wait, is yes, that that's worth story? it. <laughs> his helicopter. He's on his robe with the scalpel. <laughs> Picture John Wayne doing that. Pilgrim. I'm gonna <laughs> lift him up, Pilgrim. Oh <laughs> my goodness. Oh shit, man. They were nuts back then. Yeah. Insane. You should do that. I like to do that a lot. An episode on books, because there's some great books out there. Not only about improving craft, but also history books about film and things that oh, we yeah. read. Do you have a favorite um, favorite uh, movie that uh, you like scored? Like a favorite score to a film? Like a film score? Yeah. Good question. There's so many great ones. I mean, God. I mean, Jaws is iconic. And I mean, when people think about Jaws, they think of the dirt, but they all, that film has some great swashbuckling score to it. Swashbuckling. You know? And I love Jaws. I love the film so much. I went to the island in which they filmed it last year in Martha's Vineyard off the Cape Cod. And I oh. got drunk with all the, um, with the islanders there because it's literally, you can only get there by boat or plane, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, so it's perfectly preserved, the island. And it hasn't changed in 45 years since they shot the movie. And I actually took a photo of what the, you can see this on my Instagram. You can, I took a photo of what the movie looks like and what it looks like now. And it's like identical, right? Wow. You know, I, I went on, I went to this pub there, like a bar. And the guy that owned the bar was the little kid that was on the lilo that was eaten by the shark. Yeah, it's no pretty cool. No way. What? Are you kidding oh, me? Um, they got local. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, Jules is great. I mean, John Williams. That is, is a good one. And that talk about like iconic song to emphasize terror, man. I studied that. I studied scenes from that movie when I was in film school. Um, you know, especially like the reveal of the shark. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, before I shot a lot of that stuff because it was, you know, it's, what was it the push in when he's telling the story yeah. of, of the shark? You know, the guy, I can handle him. That we'll moment, every time that push in, man, I, I, I don't copy, I, I car copy, but I know <laughs> what you mean by feel now because that push in, like, whenever I read a script, I'm like, all right, whoever's saying something important, this should probably be like a mm -hmm. subtle, maybe just, just yeah, get closer, just be oh, interested. You yeah, know? when he's on the chalkboard, he's like, I'll catch that beast for you, you know, it's been mm -hmm. done so many times, and you see, you see how many great moments in that film have been borrowed because it's such an iconic work. And, and mm -hmm. for me, more than just it inspires me a great deal it's the film i watch before i make a movie it's because you had a 20 year old a 27 year old director make that movie and yeah. 
the problems are off the scale, the shark didn't work. And he said, well, I'm going to embrace compromise, which is a lesson in filmmaking. We should always embrace compromise. Embrace compromise. Yeah. That's what I was going to say too. Like the shark didn't work half the time. So they're like, let's visually do it. Like, you know, you're in the shark. Do, you know, suspend. Don't tell. Yeah. Our barrel sequence came out of that, but it's a textbook mm. filmmaking because it's about embracing compromise and testing your creativity to its limits. Exactly. That's what's up. Yeah. That's what makes you a stronger filmmaker. It really All is. Right. We'll give that Steven Spielberg that one. Always, yeah. The actor doesn't show up or your set, you know, burnt down or whatever. You've got to figure stuff out to tell your story. And uh, that's the beauty of the process. So. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Um, but with that said, that is a wrap on today's episode. Buzz in here. I'm just kidding. That's <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what did you say? What did you say? Nothing. I also have, I said Buzz Killington. <laughs> As always. Um, but thank you so much, Toby, for joining us. Uh, you've been a delight. Um, I miss you. I, I want to see you on set again. Uh, it, it'll, it'll happen. It'll happen. One I, day. I'm going to be in LA in April. Obviously, that that's, didn't happen. But I want to be in LA for April the next April because that's when the Academy Museum opens. It coincides with the Oscars. So I want to be there for that. Academy Museum, oh. eh? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. On Melrose Avenue in downtown, there, it's going to be the world's biggest um, film museum. And they're going to have- No way! Oh, yeah. Oh, that's sick. They found, this is a, I'll be quick, because I know you got to wrap up. They found uh, at an old junkyard in California, one of the last original casts for Jaws, for Bruce the Shark. So they basically got the production designer, Joe Alves, and they also got the Walking Dead, the guy that does all the makeup for the Walking Dead, and they restored the shark for the museum. You look, should look this up. Really oh, wow. The Academy Museum of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences is coming. Academy Museum of Motion Pictures, of, I like that name, Motion Pictures of Arts yeah. and Science. It is yes. a science. Yes, it's like a huge <laughs> golden building, right? And it looks, it looks visually like, whoa. I hope it looks visually good. It's an Academy of Motion Picture. Um, we're gonna get some some good gaffers to light it yeah. <laughs> it's got like a glass dome like um you know rooftop so you can see the whole of Los yeah. Angeles mm. cool. yeah it's crazy but before I say all the social media bullshit do you have anything you want to shout out um I know you there's dissonances on YouTube that people can watch the little picture is also on YouTube the war film we were talking about wait wait, wait hold on, hold on. sorry I, I write this stuff down uh, what is on YouTube? It's called Dissonance. Um, uh -huh. And I also made a short film set during the Vietnam War, which is a five-minute short that I shot in uh, uh, Malibu Creek um, called The Dust Child, which was an interesting experience in trying to recreate Vietnam in California, which I like to think <laughs> the, you guys will judge. But, um, yeah, that was, a, that was a great experience. So, yeah, some of my shorts are on, online. Because for me, I'm all, I'm all for getting them seen by the most amount of people possible. That's always something that I think is important as an upcoming filmmaker. Rather than shoving it on Amazon and getting it seen by five people, it's best to get it out there for the masses. You know? Of course, I have to pay for it. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. Just to get as many eyes on it as possible, that's important. Um, yeah. But, yeah, do you, do you have a website or anything like that? I did have a website, but um, difficult times have come around. So my subscription, gotcha. you know how it is, such is life. Yeah. But, uh, YouTube is a great platform. I know Vimeo is slightly more highbrow, but uh, YouTube's great for getting it seen by the, by, the, by the majority of audience. So a couple of my films are on there. 
Sorry. Amazing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, thanks for being on the show. Uh, yes. <laughs> have him have him on your set. He's a really amazing guy. Um, don't forget to follow us guys on Instagram at set underscore stories underscore podcast. This is podcast with a T. Um, I work really hard in trying to make good content on there. So please give us You're a follow. I know. Thank you. I, I try. I work hard, you know. Uh, subscribe to us on Spotify. Go to our website, assiststoriespodcast.com, where you can look at all the pl platforms where we, um, you know, have all the episodes. Uh, we're on a bunch of stuff. And please let us know if you want to be on the show. We want to have you guys. Um, at, you can email us or slide into my DMs if you like. Um, but you can email us at podcastsetstories at gmail.com. Uh, we love you guys. Keep making movies. Uh, wear the mask. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you next week.